0: Hello, and welcome to The Morning Bell podcast, where we interview authors, discuss writing-related topics, and talk about the writing process as a whole. If you want any more information about The Morning Bell and what it is, look up themorningbell.net. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics that you'd like to see discussed, email the co-editor of The Morning Bell, Kezia Lubansky, at the email address k e z i a at the net. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy listening. Hello, and welcome to The Morning Bell Podcast. My name is Joel Martin, and today we're at the Brunswick Street Bookstore, as always. And as always, we have my
1: co-host with me, Luke. How's uh, yeah. it been going? How's your week? Uh, a bit tiring. I'm still going. Um, been writing these last couple of weeks, which has been good, actually. I haven't done this much writing for quite a while, so... Uh, one short story of five thousand words and another of two thousand. So that's been really good, and another couple of pieces too. But other than that, I feel like I could have done a lot more writing. So <laughs> it's been a bit. It's it's like I've done a lot of writing compared to, like, say, the last few months. But yeah, but it feels like I could have done like twice as much. The well is still full I've for you. Been, just been feeling a bit weary and stuff. So yeah. Fair enough. That's not been great, but the writing's been cool. Interesting. Anything new on your website or sort of? I'm keeping it still hush hush until I'm gonna. I'm gonna put a little collection out. So that's collection, be, of, short collection of short stories. Nice. Yep. It's not gonna be a huge collection, but it'll be a little collection when it comes up. So yeah, fantastic. All right, looking forward. Can't to wait it. to finally get it out.
0: <laughs> well, our guest for today is Cat Clay. Kat is an award-winning photographer and writer from Melbourne, Australia. Her first novella, Double Exposure, is a weird noir tale released June 2015 with Crime Factory. This year, she has been awarded a Melbourne UNESCO City of Literature Travel Grant to attend the World Science Fiction Convention in Spokane, Washington State. I wonder if I said that right. Okay. Um, in 2012, she was a finalist in travel, uh, in travel Photographer of the Year, New Talent. Kat has written non-fiction articles for both travel and academic magazines, including The Victorian Writer, Literary Traveller, TNT, Travel Weekly, Matador Network, and Weird Fiction Review. Kat, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Um, To start it off, why don't you read us a little of what I guess we're going to be talking about a little later in the show. So start us off with a paragraph or two, and an intro if you like.
2: Uh, yes, so this is just the introduction to my uh, novella, um, Double Exposure. And um, I'll tell you a little story about the opening um, after I finished reading it. But this is just the opening. And I've got a um, really big urge to read this in a really noir kind of <laughs> 1940s, ridiculously funny New York voice. But I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that alone. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Nothing sold city secrets like a dead dame. Didn't matter how she died, just that her beautiful body was on a bed surrounded by pills or blood or both. It was business. The photographer shot divorcees in denial, sleaze bags in sordid motels, estranged daughters dating dope fiends, mayoral indiscretions and the dead. He pushed open the half-glass, half-wood door with city secrets in gold letters. It inspired a kind of class that wasn't present beyond the door. Fantastic.
0: Yeah. So, Kat, what's it all about? Like, that—that that is a brilliant opening. And I guess people would get the idea that it is noir crime. But it's a bit more than that. But we'll keep that. We'll keep that thought in your head, listeners. And we'll come back to it as to our topic as it has a big deal with that. But let you ferment on that idea. So Kat, how has your week been? What have you been up to?
2: Uh, Well, been having a pretty good week. Um, I've been having a pretty quiet one, I've got to admit, because I had a really uh, busy weekend going out to, um, I went out to Werribee Manor, one of the big heritage sites in um, Victoria. And it's just a beautiful historic house out there. And then did a driving tour around the Yarra Valley on Sunday. So I, I freelance on Mondays and Tuesdays and I felt like yesterday I needed to just have a rest from my weekend. Fair <laughs> enough. But I've been doing a lot of writing and um, I've just since finishing the novella have been um, working on a few shorter pieces and just collating some ideas for a larger mm-hmm. novel idea that I've got. Oh, interesting. Okay. So is that
0: fiction? Or?
2: Yes, I do love my fiction. Oh, there you go. Yeah.
0: You got a taste, and now you want more.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, I think that's a pretty good intro for all three of us. I've been... What have you been doing this week, Joe? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I was just about to say for all three of us, and I didn't say a thing about what I've been doing. Um, which is true, because my week has been very uneventful. It's um, honestly just been writing... Uh drinking. It's not uneventful. Yeah. It, well that's true. It, <laughs> that's it, like, it's that's your main event. <laughs> it's been very steady. Uh it's just been a lot of writing, a lot of you know, copious amounts of tea, uh which involved <laughs> burning my hand horrendously yesterday on the kettle. It's uh, a dangerous I, life being it, a writer. It is terrible. You get coffee burns and tea burns and uh, Paper cuts, maybe. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was on just the ma- keyboard. Oh, keyboard. Yeah, you the weights being,
2: um, you know, squashed under all those manuscripts.
0: <laughs> just the shelves are going to just cave in on me one money Just piling in through the weather. <laughs> such a hard, <laughs> hard life. You see, yeah. that's one way I'd like to go, Luke. Um, <laughs>
2: that sounds like a great fiction story. It
0: it does, doesn't it? Uh, it would be a d- bit depressing to read it to yourself, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yesterday I was just yeah I was I was. Thinking about my writing, I was thinking about what I was going to do and I put the kettle on and I just rested my hand against the kettle for a couple seconds and I looked up and I was like, wow, that hurt. Uh, (laughs) And then I didn't run it under cold water. I just did nothing and just went back to uh, to my room and just started working. And then I, a couple hours later, I was like, I wonder why my hand feels like it's on fire. <laughs> so, yeah. Dedicated
2: to your craft there. That's
0: right. Or just pretty stupid. <laughs> um, either way, that that's what happened to me. Um, yeah, just doing some writing, just uh, still working out the kinks of the job we've been working for a bit. And, uh, yeah, that's me. I have watched a couple of things that
1: uh, I think we'll get to pretty shortly. Yeah, we'll get to that in a bit. So, well... Actually, we may as well do that now then. Yeah. So let's move into the film section or film or anything you've watched recently anyways. Yeah. So what have you guys watched this w- w- past fortnight for you, Joel, and any time for you? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, for me, I did watch
0: something and I really want to talk about it. And, and it's one of those things that I think I felt a lot, you know, v- very strongly about it. It was a... Um, well, it is a, a season, uh, season one of Wolf Hall. Now, Wolf Hall is... Um, based around the events, um, well, I guess, the main events of uh, Thomas Cromwell, who was an advisor to Henry VIII um, during the whole Anne Boleyn and the many wives of Henry um, issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other shows have done this before, like the Tudors and stuff like that. Um, And so it was, you know, with a bit of hesitation, I went into Wolf Hall. I'd only heard a little, and what I did here was very, very positive. So I went in with it, and I was, you know... Um, a bit of trepidation, but I watched it and I finished uh, the first. And you can you can buy the DVD. It's out in ABC uh, shops, so you should be able to get it there. And in JB, I think as well. Um, and for our international listeners, it's online everywhere. Basically, uh, you can get it anytime. But Wolf Hall is very very well crafted. It's one of those TV shows that, to me that proves you don't need to sex up history you know you don't need to make it all <laughs> sexy and dark and because it is very very all of that um if you just keep to the events sure there are liberties taken with the historical um events and such and a lot of the criticism or you know a little bit of the criticism on the series has been just that it's just like oh you know i felt like it favored this character um over that character and yeah there's a bit of that around the main events is uh, there's two characters in history that that are quite important to this story and one is Thomas Cromwell uh, and then there's Thomas More. Now Thomas More is the author of Utopia and other such material and he was a very staunch Catholic. So when the whole Reformation came about and how you know the King of England wanted to break away from uh, Catholicism and you know, for his own reasons, uh, he was opposed to that. And, you know, uh, history tells us he uh, paid for it with his life. And Cromwell did for another reason, very you know, a couple of years later. But in this one, it definitely favored Cromwell's version of things. He's the protagonist for this series, so it's inevitable that they will give him a favorable bias. Um, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, they don't go into the whole of, this is a really good guy. They don't give you that... Um, sense that this guy can do no wrong either mm-hmm. he, he has flaws and you can see you know you can see the compromises he makes and you wonder uh you know would you have done this those years before um
1: is it more of a character building sort of thing yes it, it's
0: very very well done you know the character is complex uh, well crafted his relationship with other people are very interesting considering that the way they portray cromwell in this one is very quiet reserved he doesn't talk a lot. You'd think that would be tough, but, you know, the actor did a uh, mock relance. Mm. And, um, no, Wolf Hall really blew me off my feet. I'm very, very impressed at what they did. And and it just proves to me, I guess, um, why I didn't like The Tudors so much. You know, The Tudors is very soapy. Just like a lot of HBO dramas and such these days, there's a lot of soap. There's a lot of stuff in there to keep people interested. um, And they feel, you know, people will just fly away if they don't. Immediately have payoffs, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, it was a very, very good show, and I guess that takes up my entire segment. Um, <laughs> I did wax a little bit lyrical there, but it, yeah, I, I really liked it. It was a very good show, very, very strong. Cat,
2: yeah, I've, um, I've been seeing a few movies. Mm-hmm. Um, my sh- the show that I do love um, wrapped up probably a couple of weeks ago, which is Miss, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Um, yep. and I just love Miss Franny Fisher running around Melbourne with her golden <laughs> gun and, yeah. uh, in her fabulous outfits. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, just teasing the delightful Jack Robinson. Yeah. Um, and, and just the way she just exudes joy in mm. everything that she does. And, um, she never needs a man to get her out of a situation. Yeah. She just does it herself and just does it with just poise and panache. I yeah, just, yeah. I've always, um, I've really enjoyed watching that series. Um, yeah but i did see uh, a really great film on the weekend which was pixar's inside out oh um, yes yeah was, yep yep i've seen yeah. some of the media around that yes. yeah yeah it was a, i How was i just really enjoyed it actually i think it's a uh, adults movie in disguise as much of <laughs> pixar's work is they're secretly targeting all the adults who have taken their children to see the film <laughs> always um and it's a, it's a is a beautiful film about those changes you have when you're growing up and mm. um really, you know, Pixar just, a friend said to me today, they really bring the feels and um, they know how to balance out that really great humour with, um, with some really touching moments and, yeah. you mm. know, a bit of dry eye in the <laughs> cinema there. Um,
1: dry? Oh, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I had the wrong experience. <laughs> um,
2: and, and especially, you know, going into those things that we loved when we were kids and how how the kid's mind works in yeah. and, and relationship to the parents and the people around them and mm. the things that go through your mind when times of change happen and I think I think it could be if anybody can affiliate with the main characters um you know problems and mm. her, her heart heartache and that so mm. yeah. it's quite a touching film
0: yeah, awesome. Have you watched anything else that you want well, to talk
2: about? Well, I could talk about Jurassic World for about an hour and a half. <laughs> and not in a good way. <laughs> yes,
0: I've had a lot of mixed that things. Have, yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: About that film. <laughs> yes, I'd be interested to hear what you think about it if, uh, if you've seen it. Mm. But um, I yeah, saw that a couple of weeks ago and I've, I've been quite shocked at the positive mm. uh, <laughs> reviews that have been pouring in for this film yep. when... Maybe I'm a, just a devotee of the original and someone who grew up, you know, in those yep. in those childhood years that were so influential mm. watching the big T-Rex and the, the raptors. Mm. And I think, um, as a, I guess being a little bit of a feminist, I would say that I admire the original character who was a paleontologist and who stuck her hand in a pile of poo and wore very practical shoes to go wandering <laughs> around Jurassic Park. Mm. In comparison with um, the heroine of Jurassic World who – Managed to her credit run around the entire jungle in a pair of uh, high heels that don't even have straps. <laughs> and... I, I'm someone who loves the great outdoors. I've done lo- loads of hiking, loads of uh, you know survival adventuring. Mm. Um, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You could uh, <coughs> even doing that kind of jungle and bush and that mud in a pair of trainers would be yeah. difficult. You need mm. some waterproof shoes. You need some you know really strong soles, and you certainly you'd just be aerating the the ground if you've tried walking through a you know a damp. Um, say a damp park with a pair of high heels on. All you realise is that all you'll be doing is aerating the so- the, the soil, <laughs> and your your shoes will get stuck in that mud and that yeah. dirt, and you know. Um, and how she manages to, spoiler alert, run away from the Tyrannosaurus threats in heels. <laughs> it's just, well... <laughs> Was it wearing heels too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good image. That's a really <laughs> that's good question. Yeah. A, really a female dinosaur with yeah. high heels. Yeah. So I spent most of the film laughing. Um, mm. And, you know, I do love Chris Pratt because I don't think he takes it too seriously. Because he realises he's in a film yes. yeah. with yeah. the girl wearing high heels the yeah. whole time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So he, he he brings the laughs, but yeah, uh, not not not, not, best, not my favorite apparently. movie.
0: No, see, I've, I've, I I put off watching it because I've watched you know the Jurassic Parks, and you know again I stick to it. The first one was the best simply mm-hmm. because it understood what it was trying to be. You know, you know the hubris of um, how man is and how we want to recreate. There's a lot more going on in that film than me as a kid watching it. You know, when I first watched it, and I was like, wow, dinosaurs. But, you know, when I go back and watch it, there's a lot going on in that film that they're playing with. And that is what's missing from all of the movies that have followed after. After that, it just became a disaster movie. You know, it mm. just became people running away from dinosaurs.
2: Well, I remember reading the books as a teenager and just loving them because I love mm. this sense of wonder and mm. awe that they inspired. But I think, too, what I, I really felt that Jurassic Park did get that balance right in that term of the main character who... Um, was played by, is it Richard Attenborough? Uh, David Attenborough's brother. Yeah. Um, And had this really soft and gentle and caring side, but also this side that wanted to be successful. Yeah, and yeah. was very driven. And he had a really interesting character in that, whereas mm-hmm. I feel like, I th- I'm pretty sure Irfan Khan is the, the megalomaniac, Indian, mm. uh, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, world owner. The- Sorry?
1: Hang on, I'm trying to figure out who you're talking about That's all.
2: He's the he's the kind of you know, um, I guess the megalomaniac who wants to who runs Jurassic World yeah, yeah. and owns it and wants to fly helicopters all around the place. And he's so one-dimensional yeah, and yeah, and he's got the worst script to work with. And yeah. I just watched him, and I, I've I've heard of his performance in, in Treatment, and it's meant to be incredible. Yeah, and I just saw him in the Indian film called um, The Lunchbox, and mm-hmm. he was a producer on that, and. He was really gave a subtle performance in that, and he's such a better caller actor than what than what was <laughs> given to him in this film. Yeah, yeah, I just felt really disappointed with him, and as well as, and not in his acting skills, but in just the script that yeah. he he had to work. It's very with. difficult. What can yeah. you do, really? Yeah. Um, apart paid, from not take
0: I'm sure the sure job, his salary I'm apart if from he the didn't paycheck. Yeah. The, <laughs> as long as he yeah. didn't argue with his lines, you yeah. get a good paycheck. <laughs> That's <and> right. <laughs> yeah.
1: But um, uh, yeah. Interesting, Luke. Yeah, I'll, I want to actually keep keep on with that. Did, was there? There wasn't a Jurassic World book, was it? I don't. I didn't follow it closely enough to know that.
2: No, I've only read. Um, I've read Jurassic Park and the Lost World. I think mm-hmm. was the sequel, yep. and um, yeah, I, I don't know that there are any more by Michael Crichton in the no. series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong on that. <laughs> well, th- I, th- I think th- there might have been some tie-in stuff there.
0: on, <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that would be odd. Yeah, but
1: yeah. I, I really, I think I liked all of the first three. Actually, the uh, the first one was good because it was the original idea, and obviously it had all these themes of the the um, the pride and the fall of these people who are digging through technology and, and history and everything and mashing them all together. The second one and the third one, I think, didn't fall down because it wasn't starting up a new idea. It was going to the place where it was started in the first place, and the first time, I can't, I can't recall what happened in in the Lost World. And I, I read the book, but I can't remember what it was, what what started it. But the second time, it was a blackmail of one of the first characters, and that was that sort of helped to carry it. But starting the park again doesn't compute with anything that has gone through Mm. so far see see, I, I almost want to take you to task with the second and the third because
0: yeah there were good bits of one Jeff Goldblum
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, By all Jeff accounts, <laughs> the guy is, you
0: know, I'm not criticizing him. He's amazing yeah, in everything. Sorry. They weren't perfect films, but
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think they, they still stood. They were okay. I they think still so. the
2: second one did stand up. It wasn't as good as the first no yeah. But I think, too, because you're working with the original writer's source material, mm. which w- mm-hmm. Michael Crichton's always been a very strong plotter, a very yeah. strong writer of um, thrilling stories and yeah. adventures, and very creative, too. And that's why his book sold so many copies because Mm. he knows how to hit all those notes in that kind of story. Um, But with this, I don't think they had that source material, so it feels Mm. like it's rehashing that. And I think some of the logic is lost in that because you've got someone setting up a Jurassic world and completely ignoring the lessons of the past. And I mean, I know that history does repeat itself Mm. despite many warnings not to, but... (laughs) You know, it just seems like they're kind of ignoring this uh, passive thing, uh, uh, this past, and I feel that it ties into a really, I guess it's a bit of a saddening movement for me in cinema at the moment, mm. which is to remake a lot of films that, you know, the, are the films that I I grew up with and like, yeah, um, RoboCop, <coughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the beloved films. films. That would be all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, D- don't get me started on RoboCop and yeah my general rule is don't remake a classic like you can't mm. you can't top it it's like remaking psycho it's like remaking RoboCop. yeah you just you're don't not do that you to do a better job
0: and and the, and the funny thing is with mm. you know this side traffic side tra- uh, tracking a bit before it's still back film to... it's fun yeah oh, it's just <laughs> a discussion it's, good. it's <laughs> a discussion yeah that's right um is that with robocop like you i could go on for hours about how much i love the original and um the, the director's vision and, you know, how intelligent that director made an an American action film that had all these things underlying the surface of what made that film so good. Uh, and then uh, the new film making it a thing is the thing is if they had made that film and called it any other name, it would have been an all right film because everybody said it was actually an OK movie, even yeah. though they wanted to hate it. But by trying to make a RoboCop movie, oh, there's almost a part of me that's like, why would you make something it's that's like perfect? Like wrenching
2: a part of your heart that's out from right. your childhood and just stomping on it. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I think um, one of the films that comes to mind, which I, I felt similarly about, and I, I mean, I didn't see it till I was older, but Total Recall, and it was yeah. another one of those films. Just why did you? That's right. Why did you need to remake that?
0: Sorry to cut you off there, Kat, but you were in the middle of Total Recall, I think.
2: Um, Yeah, so I was just saying that I feel like um, a film like Total Recall is another example of something that didn't really need to be remade. And Mm. I feel like, and again, I saw the Judge Dredd remake, and I feel like some of these films have the most exquisite visuals, and I, I love I loved um, actually seeing some of the visuals in the Judge Dredd film because I thought the the effects team did something Oh, such an incredible... I have some opinions
0: on Dredd, so I'll let you finish yeah, and then I'll yeah. jump right in. <laughs> well, I,
2: I've, I've, you know, I'm not, I haven't seen the original of Dredd, so mm. I haven't nothing to hold it against. But I felt like the visuals in that, you know, with the CGI the and the special effects yeah, that are the going up yeah. these days, are really, you know, they're top notch, right? Mm. But the stories and the characters they're not coming along for the ride with the quality of the imagery that's going next to Mm -hmm. it. And um, it's where I feel like good direction is, you know, so rare that when you see films like Mad Max, that's just been a commercial and I feel a critical success. You see a really strong director with this really strong sense of Mm -hmm. direction Mm. and really great visuals to attach yourself. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a cash-in. No, no, it feels like a really brilliant film and... I think we forget that audiences are really open to coming along for these amazing yep. rides and want to be awed and wowed and experience stuff. But
1: well, they don't want to see some. Well, maybe they do want to see it, but they don't want to necessarily see something that's already awed and wowed them mm. done in a different way. Yeah,
0: done done in a way that almost lets it down. You yeah, know? yeah. It again, mm. I'm gonna jump in on that Judge Dredd train <laughs> because I till this day I will hold up my flag and say the f- the original movie was the worst <laughs> on, on this planet adaptation of a Judge Dread comic that I have seen. It
2: is <laughs>
0: terrible. Uh, the, the idea behind Judge Dread turning into just this generic action hero, which he is an action hero. Make no bones about it. He's not some complex character. But, but the very fact that Sly took his helmet off so many times that movie because he's like I'm Sylvester Stallone. It's like just in case you forgot. Because I can't keep this helmet on. It's it shows to me that film was just had no soul, the first movie. And I'm sorry to people who like the original. And that's why I thought the new dread
1: two or four <laughs> the
0: The New Dread, like just just called Dread, is is such a um, ode to those comics. Such a you know a big fan approval of this is Judge Dredd, and we're just going to give you a very very simple story. There's not a lot to it, mm. but this is Judge Dredd, and I I was shocked to see the audience reaction, uh, especially in America, of just not supporting the movie um, for several reasons, I guess, but also that it wasn't a Native uh, American production. It was a South African, and I think. Um, oh, I can't remember the other, but mostly South African, um, uh, production team, and it was just it was brilliant. I think Dread is one of the best, um, uh, not superhero, but in that vein of these sort of commercial films that are coming out, and, and to me it was mm. just a glorious shame that that film got you know no exposure, um, mm. and it did it did well on the whole. Um, DVD sales and stuff like that but yeah
2: I have a theory about that and it's a little bit of a diversion but my theory is always that films struggle um, especially when there are adaptations from comics and that mm. um, when the main character's constantly wearing a mask so mm. there's three characters I can think of that really struggled in. I felt in the film adaptation one is dread because you just don't get that full range of his face mm. the whole film you just get the pursed lips yeah, and yeah. cranky face yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The second one is Bane from a Batman. Yeah. I found it r- really hard to get... A Bane s- was an awful character. <laughs> it was hard because he's wearing a mask the whole time yeah. and you can't get that emotive sense from an actor yeah. in a visual film mm. when they're wearing a mask. And the third one, which I feel is the strongest point in this argument, is *FIFA Vendetta mm. because it's a brilliant script. It's a brilliant story. Yeah. it got brilliant actors in it. But it's really hampered by the fact you can't see it's Hugo weaving, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. His face the whole time, and and that was the difficulty. And and it's, it works on paper because you you're imagining this and you're imagining the story. But but in the thi- yeah in a screen it really brings home the reality of the fact that he's wearing a mask all mm. the time. And you know I feel like it could have would have it would have I guess deviated from this. The comic, um, if they'd have had a half mask or something like that, and I don't think it would have really worked with the story. But it's really, really difficult to do that. Yeah, like, you know. it's
0: it's difficult, I think. But like for Viva for Vendetta, I think um, I I I really liked the fact that they kept that mask. Mm. I, I there, there's a sense that you, you're completely right in the fact that it's impersonal. Mm. Um, but I think being impersonal as a character is very strong as mm. well. Like, can be really, really well done. Bane, I completely agree with you. It was an awful character. And not just because of the mask, but I don't know what Christopher Nolan was thinking during <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises. Everybody disagrees with me on this fact and says it was a good film. I do not I think would,
2: so. I have my f- mixed feelings about that film That too. film
0: was just one giant problem with me. It's just the <laughs> premise made no sense uh, whatsoever. Um, and And... I think after the success and just the the fantastic way he did Dark Knight, um, the Dark Knight, uh, with with the Joker and and the antagonist being like so strong and interesting, here you've got a you know old man Bane. It's just it's just really odd, and I don't know who decided that that voice was a good idea or that mask the way it was presented was a good idea, but. Oh man, that was that was bad, and it's just become the internet meme. You know, you see it everywhere of like people making fun of of Ben and I. You know, it was bad. I can't defend it. it was in, in my opinion a very bad movie. But let's raise our flags there. And Luke, will you finish us off in the oh, film? It it's taken so
1: long. I'll just give a very quick thing. Yep. Minions was bad. Strike Back was okay. The Castle was brilliant again. Okay, okay fine. All right, I'll give it. I'll give you more. <laughs> Uh, minions. Back? Minions <laughs> minion was awful. Was terrible. Yeah, completely. No, weird. no, not completely. It was just that nothing that should have been done was emphasised with the minions. Is what I would say. It was
0: a it, it was, was a, a giant film, sugar rush of a but movie. But
1: it was more like this. Uh, what what I was expecting when I went in there was going to be like Minion Mayhem and mm. they actually the sort of stuff that they did the whole the whole film with um, with Despicable Me Yeah, and two. But instead of that, they had kind of like this little sort of development process for the their characters. Instead of, um, instead of like this more interesting sort of um, pranksters, mm. they weren't they weren't so much pranksters as they were kind of like there's the cute guy, there's the artistic guy, and there's yeah. the um, the leader guy, the nerdy dude, leader, yeah, well not so much nerd, but it went through their development and things that they do and things they do by accident. Instead of kind of their little awesome pranks from, mm. from the Despicable Me series. So, no, it wasn't terrible, but compared to what I was hoping for, it was lacking severely. See, the thing about minions, and if I was to be cynical, which I'm definitely <laughs> not,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: please, I think it's a very cynical cash-in on the, you know, they were like, you know what, these characters are loved, and p- kids love them especially, they're adorable, money. We could make so much money, can't we, Fred? And his friend's like, yep, we could, Bob. And they did it. And I and I bet you the, the sales are fantastic on Minions. Mm. Uh, but uh, it, it's Pixar, isn't it?
1: It's no, 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 it. It. It's no, it's no. It's DreamWorks. That's um, uh, right. What's the other one? World. V- I refuse or? to
2: believe Pixar just do things for money. Universal, <laughs> that's the one, Universal.
0: Yeah, Universal. it. unlike films that have this, you know... You know, even Despicable Me was a good film because, you know, it had a, a simple story, but it was charming and delightful. Um, Too not so much for me. Mm. But with Minions, it just exemplified the fact of, like, here are characters that have no premise whatsoever. Here's a Sugar Rush movie for the next 60 minutes. And I swear I nearly had a terrible, like, throw-up session watching that. It was terrible. A very, very strong reaction, unlike yours. <laughs>
1: But well, see, I would have said that it was good if they'd actually focused on their prank side, mm. which was huge in the other... But the it's other difficult so when you don't have anything to carry it, though. There's yeah. no real story. The question
2: like. is, did you take children <laughs> under the age of 10 to see this film and... What's their opinion of it versus your uh, yeah your exactly? Because you're not the they it. For they probably love it. They
0: probably love it. Yeah, it's a it, like
2: little little minion uh, things running around the place. Yeah, jump, you know, doing minion things. And I mean, I, look, I've watched Despicable Me, Despicable Me Two mm-hmm. wasn't as good, and I'm you know I'm sure this probably has its own flaws. But for little little five year old kids, they probably love. Yellow things You're completely place. right, by the way. <laughs> I,
0: I'm being very, very harsh in a film that is targeted towards strictly children. I guess, the, I guess the issue that I have is we've been so used to having animated films be for both audiences... That it sort of lulled us into a thing where it's mm. like, yeah, it'll be for me too, right? And then I you think go.
2: And- <laughs> the hardest thing too is like I felt like um, Inside Out was an excellent film, mm. but I actually felt like it was aimed at a it needed to be seen by an older children's market because mm. when I was watching it and. Um, you know, like younger say, teens I'd say or something. 10, yeah. ten and upwards, yeah. because there was five, five, six year old kids in there yeah, going that, to mm. expecting a kind of maybe Toy Story film, and it was actually quite dark in places. Yeah, there were kids crying in the film, and yeah. you know, I'm sure that's not the intention of the filmmakers, but I would say to <laughs> to really take older yeah. older children to it, like older primary and yeah. high school yeah, students. It's certainly
1: designed for that. The whole way that the mind is working, and that mm. you can see the way that it develops. It's actually aimed at that. Sort of ten, eleven. Exactly. Yeah. yeah right yeah. there,
2: because you tend to. I mean, in <laughs> fiction, you write up for your audience, mm. so your audience would say be one or two years younger than the age yep. of your protagonist. So she, mm. I think she's eleven or twelve in the film. Mm-hmm. So, you'd be looking at nine and ten year olds, and and I think they're the better audience for it. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: I haven't seen it, but from the promotional material and stuff I've seen, yeah, that definitely seems to fit. Right, yeah. like the younger sort of teens rather than children's. There's Um, so many
1: layers to that film, though. Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, I could go on for ages about it. It's beautiful. (laughs) But
1: again, again with the minions, I think, yes, I know, I know it's aimed at younger kids, but I think they could have done it so that kids would still enjoy it, but at least that it was more in character with Mm. the um, characters. That's that's the main problem I had. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, But anyways, um, quickly wrapping it up. Before (laughs) we wrap up. Okay, well, let's
0: Strike we Back. We sort of hogged your session, strike actually. A, um, <laughs> I actually want to talk about Strike Back a little more. Strike Back, yeah. yeah.
1: I wasn't in there because I was extremely excited about um, spy movies. I'm not big on spy movies. Not too, I'm not against them. But mm. uh, I was curious about Strike Back because it was British. And I've yep. seen a lot of American spy films and American... Um, op- Op stuff, uh, military stuff, etc., etc., etc. It's it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, you can pick up a, any TV show, and it's ninety percent chance it's an American military yeah. one, right? Or it's you know, like a soap. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I was, very I feel curious. like you're talking about TV like ten
0: years ago. <laughs> it, uh, it's moved or on. HBO I mean, soap. Yeah. Or, uh, There's <laughs> not a
1: lot of military <laughs>
0: stuff actually. Back in these the great days. Day no, of there is Nash. still yeah. a lot of
1: still a lot of them coming out though. Yeah. But but this was British. And I was very curious because, you know, the, the American... Uh, sorry, this is actually into it. I noticed that the American films are a lot more aggressive and a lot more arrogant hmm. in the way that they present their forces. And there was still pieces of that in this, but it was more, more subdued. Than the American side, which was kind of curious it's to It's like watch. most of what I know British cinema scripted, does. Yeah. I know it's still scripted and I know it's still straight off somebody's writing pad. But it's it was still curious to see the way that especially when they they um interacted with Americans mm. and the diplomats. So it was curious to see what happened in my end.
0: Is it actually a British production? Strike back.
1: Uh, I didn't research that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because that'd be interesting. I know it's focused on it's British in, protagonists, I, I but I
1: didn't recognize the producer of uh, the um, the pr- producer. No,
0: because it would so, be interesting if if the actual yeah. company making it is American or like whether it's you know a BBC. Well, it wasn't a
1: it wasn't a famous American one that I can Well-known, think yeah. of, and it's not BBC, so yeah. not sure actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was it was curious. I only watched a, uh, was it one season? I only watched one season and a piece of the next because I was just curious, mm-hmm. but. No, it was it was interesting. It was a nice sort of break from the American military stuff. Yeah. Not that I cover myself in that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean
1: like Matthew Riley is you Matthew know Matthew it, yeah. It's like the epitome American, of isn't that, it? isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, anything else? And I watched The Castle again The Australian film The good old classic Is it The Castle? 19- the Castle Oh, you're talking about 1990s. Okay, yep, yep. That's a great film it, Yeah,
2: Great film I yeah. have to say Because my family Actually has a pool room but <laughs> the film strikes A special chord in me yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, but that it was really good to see that again. And I don't think there's been a remake of that and I'm really glad.
2: I'm glad too. I don't think anybody <laughs> don't should say anything, remake it, or or yes. yeah.
1: It wouldn't sh- yeah. Australian okay.
2: filmmakers aren't that we we I don't think we remake things yet.
1: They hit a gem and they haven't decided to modernise it yet. So that's I'm I'm happy with um, that. It's yeah. really good. If they do
2: crocodile away. dundee, we're all in <laughs> in trouble. <laughs> I just leave. I just leave. They're <laughs>
0: like,
1: no, nope, I'm done. Um but yeah, yeah, so it was good. It's just watching the the whole family interaction, and it's not like one of those families like in most films where it's like everybody has some kind of argument with another mm. person in the family, and they split it up halfway through the the film. It's like everybody in the family is tight knit, like completely. Yeah. Like, there's no there's no floor in their sort of ties. Mm-hmm. And it goes through the entire story like that.
2: (laughs) They're a family that just really loves each other. And I think there's actually a lot to be said and there's a lot of families like that out in the Australian suburbs. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's what's quite touching about the film. And plus Eric Banner in that tracksuit's quite hilarious.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Talk about an actor we'd like to see more of. Yeah. Yeah. It's very good. (laughs) Um, Yeah, anyway,
1: that wraps up for me.
0: Fantastic. Before we go on to the topic... I have a really quick section that I would like it to be um, a section that we can possibly do over a few podcasts. But it's basically talking about criticism. Now, writers are, I guess, very um, touchy when it comes to criticism. (laughs) We've developed, you know, thick skin, some of us have, uh, to avoid it or to make use of it um, to understand criticism. But there's something that's not actually said, and that is critiquing criticism because I find that criticism these days and we're talking about reviewers, professional reviewers um, have fallen into the trap of what we used to do in high school and you know what we (laughs) used to do when we were analyzing things very, very superficially and what I'm talking about is you know when you pass a thing around the classroom and people say oh you know what do you think about it? They're like oh yeah you know it was good I like the characters very deep um, and funny enough, I'm looking through reviews today of books and I seeing the same thing of a, 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 review, a reviewer saying, Oh, I found this character was, you know, wasn't very deep at all. And then end of sentence and then moves on to another point. And it, and it struck me. And I, and I sat there for a moment thinking, Oh my, have we really, have we really started doing this in professional criticism these days? And <laughs> It's not to say that I am devaluing their criticism. I'm saying that if you wish to critique a piece, I feel like you should qualify that and to, um, to actually articulate it and not be very blasé with your criticism, which I think is all right when you're starting off in high school or whatever, <laughs> but <laughs> certainly is, in my opinion, unforgivable when it comes to professional, professional, yeah, professional, yeah, professional yeah. criticism. Yep. criticism. So let's talk about this one thing, and that is exactly what I just said is this character wasn't very deep. Everybody's seen sentences like that on the web, whatever, and in in some ways, I think things like Twitter and Facebook exemplify this of short, snappy messages that don't have a lot of context mm. but have a strong opinion and when we say a deep character we're we're thinking, oh you know a character has depth. what does that actually mean <laughs> It's very hard for me to actually identify what that actually means. Because some characters are not meant to be uh, complex three-dimensional characters. They're meant to be... um, Maybe it's a psychological mirror of another character showing a different side of himself or herself through a different person. And then they identify or don't identify with that character. And there's so many aspects. So... Mm. This is what I have to say for this. If you're going to say this character isn't very well fleshed out, then actually spell it out in your criticism. Say, um, I didn't feel like the author dwelt too long on their thoughts or you know, the emotions weren't clear to the reader. We didn't really get a sense of what they were thinking most of the time or feeling or whether there was any other motivation apart from I kill things or I don't kill things.
1: <laughs> that
0: way, the actual reader, when they're reading a, a piece of review, they actually understand that. They're like, oh. That makes sense. Mm. So that's just what I've got to say. And, you know, I guess Mm. as the podcast goes on, I'll be bringing up little facts um, about what I've seen during the week or whatever, and then we can rip it apart.
2: (laughs) I'd love to mention just uh, my two cents on that. And Mm -hmm. I think it applies to any kind of writing is this idea of specificity. And especially in reviewing, you really need to be... You can't be generic in any kind of good writing, um, whether it's fiction or non-fiction. And if you're going to... Critique something, then you really have to identify strongly those um, those parts and aspects mm-hmm. of it that you liked and disliked. Um, and I used to run a review site, and mm-hmm. I felt like I would rather review less books and write quality reviews than you know yeah. do a scattergun approach to to <laughs> I know what writing yeah. review And 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 the thing is, the authors want to read you know, detailed feedback. You know, we it's not that we don't want to read. Um, we want to read about what you thought of the characters because it's really the only way we get better exactly. is to understand where where the weaknesses are or where the good points are. And, mm-hmm. you know, and if what you run mean, a terrible review, well then, yeah. you know, we'll just ignore you forever. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah.
1: If it just says not deep, it feels like you're throwing a punch, not like
0: you're... Exactly. Not like mm. you're trying to help. Yep, Yeah. So, and not trying, uh, not like you're trying to help your readers. You know, people yeah. who might buy or not buy the book. You're not doing them a service at mm, all. Nope. You're just reinforcing the idea that most reviewers today are missing the point.
1: Maybe what it needed was a shallow character there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. You know
0: that that that's exactly what I'm talking about. And you know, for our listeners that will now go troll through the podcast to where I said a character wasn't deep at some point. <laughs> I'm sure we have. But the whole point is that people should get better about this, that we should be more thoughtful in our criticisms, and that applies to every one of us as well. But yeah. like I said, we're not professional reviewers, um, or I'm not in, in the very least, <laughs> and it's my opinion on things that come up. And we might be doing this more on the podcast some weeks. We might, we might not. So that's a new section for you. Um, moving swiftly on to our topic for this uh, week, Kat, your book, um, novella, actually, Double Exposure, it's fantastic. I've read it myself. It was very good. I'm not just saying that. <laughs> I'm a big fan of crime, and especially crime that straddles the line between different genres. I like the idea of mishmashing mashing genres. Um, so what gave you that idea? Like, we heard a short segment at the start, and it it was interesting to me because i i read it and um i was like wow, that's that's a lot of information about photography and i'm like i wonder how she knew all this stuff and you know how much research would have gone into it and then i remembered oh that's right you're a professional photographer <laughs> that probably helped yep um so yeah talk to us uh, okay. a bit about it
2: well um you know it's a it's a very deep book um, <laughs> <laughs> i see what you did there i had there. to slip that in um, okay yep <laughs> I, uh, specificity. <laughs> yes, specificity. Um, so double exposure, I guess, came about as um, it was an idea, and I, I'm a firm believer in the percolation of ideas. I feel that my brain is a giant coffee pot, one of those ones you mm-hmm. see in the, you know, 1960s movies <laughs> in the kind of dirty office with the the dirty filter that hasn't been changed right. for a couple of weeks, <laughs> and you know, the final little drips of coffee coming through. That's that's how my writerly mm-hmm. brain works, um, and so. I'd had this idea and I've always um, – I've had a picture of um, I think it's Hopper's um, Nighthawks um, that's hung in my house for a long time and I always look at that painting and, and I think of stories that these people could have in this bar and, you know, and, and in kind of looking at those those pictures and photographs of the night and, you know, the scandal photographers through history, uh, this character we gave began to come to me um, called the photographer and he was this guy who would do anything for a story um, but what happened when he came across a story he couldn't explain Mm. and I wrote a little bit out of a little um, character sketch um, and kind of opening scene uh, where he goes to take some photos and um, the original idea was that he'd taken these photos and he the body had been there, the crime scene, and then when the police had gone there, the body had disappeared. Yeah. And I didn't know at that point in time whether it would be supernatural or not. Um, so I'd had this sketch sitting there for about three years or so and um, I met the publisher of Crime Factory, Cameron Ashley, at a pitching event in mm-hmm. th- at the Wheeler Centre Um. And basically you had three minutes to pitch your ideas to a publisher and they said yay or nay, whether they'd like to hear from you a bit more. And I hadn't actually come to pitch a crime story at all. Mm -hmm. And I went and talked to him because I thought, well, I actually do love writing crime as much as I like writing other types of genre fiction as well. Mm. And we just hit it off. And um, both had really common interests in James Elroy and Jeff Vandermeer's writing. And, um, yeah, asked me what I was – what I had had for him and I told him about this idea I'd had for a while and um from there that grew the story of double exposure Mm -hmm. I guess the um you mentioned that the photography stuff is really strong in the story and I'm actually not uh native in film although I did do when I did film at university I shot on 16 millimeter film yeah and we'd mm-hmm. be changing the bag, the film reels in the bags. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I found that quite frustrating for me because I, I do like the instantaneous nature yep. of digital. Um, but growing up, my dad had a duck room in our garage and my dad right. has always loved mm-hmm. photography. Um, my sister loves photography and so do I. And I think we were brought up with that passion for images. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but in writing Double Exposure, I did a lot of research on the historical aspects of crime and um, crime photography and looked through a lot of pho- uh, photography books, as well as looking at how the cameras from that era. So, the, the Speed Graphic was the main camera yeah. from the 1940s that was used in, um, in kind of uh, news photography. Um, and then later on you get the pentaxes coming through from – and the likers from the w- the war correspondents who use them mm-hmm. instead of the speed graphics mm-hmm. um, because of their lightweight nature. Um, but the speed graphic was a bulky box thing um, – and I read a lot about people who'd used them, talking about the process of using them. And it was such a difficult process. It's not like you see in the films. And this is one thing that really stuck out to me is how incorrect the depictions of classic photography are in in, in you know noir films yeah, that yeah. are made today. This sense of nostalgia perpetuates these films. But um, you see the scene, it happens in all films with... There's a whole bunch of photographers with the flash bulbs popping, yep, yep. and they go pop, 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 and you know, miss, miss, you know, yeah. tell us the story of how you became a Hollywood star, like, that <laughs> kind of thing. And the lights are flashing non stop, but that wouldn't have happened because for, for a few reasons. Um, flash bulbs in classic cameras, you mm. had to take out, they're one time use only. Yeah. Um, the second thing is that your film, um, you'd only have two. Uh, Two sheets of film yeah. in your um, in your holder, and you'd have to turn it o- over in between shots, mm-hmm. and you had to pull out a dark slide, then push it back in, then pull the film out, and then push it, turn it over and push it back in, then pull the dark slide out again, then focus. Then yeah, it was a process, and um, you can actually see one of these cameras in the window. I think it was. I think it's one of the it might be the George's Camera Museum um, in Melbourne. Um, but they put it in the window of the shop. And when you see yeah. it, it's a beast of a thing. <laughs> it's a big, you know, you you wouldn't need large hands. Yeah. And it's it's a, a monster. Um, so I wanted to just kind of go in and really, um, le- I watched a bunch of great YouTube videos of re- really enthusiastic um uh, amateurs and enthusiasts of of classic photography using the five yeah. by fours mm. and they demonstrate how to use them on on youtube and it 's fantastic to see them in action and it yeah. kind of makes up for not being able to get my hands on one yeah. actually and use it mm-hmm. but it's the next best thing and yeah. YouTube is a great tool for research because yeah. you get that that feel for what it was like mm.
0: interesting um, when when you decided to mix, you know, mix the genre at, at one point, you know, you mentioned about the body being there um, one moment and then gone after he it takes his eyes out of the out of the lens. It's it was interesting to me because yes, I'd I'd read the blurb and then I read it and then I got to like I think the the mid uh, the midpoint in the in the book and then I was like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know this genre was in here too, <laughs> you know. Was there a fear when you were writing it? Like, mm, am I should I stick just straight crime in here, you know, play it safe? You, was there any of that? When you there were was a it?
2: little bit and I, I, um, there's a few things that came into it. But I, I think because I love books that cross the genres of crime and supernatural and two, two of the probably biggest influences in this story was mm-hmm. um, Finch by Jeff Vandermeer, which is a, a weird noir and it's yeah. set in his fictional... Um, fantasy town of Ambergris which is taken over by mushrooms Mm -hmm. and these are these are um, quite insidious mushrooms that use their psychotropic effects to enslave the people of Ambergris and Finch is kind of wandering this line between his mushroom overlords investigating this crime that is very trippy and bizarre and trying to liberate the city at the same time and it's a (laughs) Very haunting book and Jeff Vanderby's work has always stayed with me. Um yeah. even when I kind of I, I don't necessarily um it's one of those books that I I think about often. Um whereas at the time when you read it you kind of it's those books that you that stick with you and you keep rethinking yeah. about the content and um at the time maybe it didn't strike you so much, but all of his books have in some way really kind of haunted me. Yeah. Um, and the other writer that had a big influence on it was the work of China Miéville, who's just one of my absolute favourite writers. Yeah. Um, and it's actually, um, I, w- I think people would think that The City and the City is the big influence on this book, but it's actually would be China Miéville's one one of his early novellas called The Tain, which mm-hmm. is about uh, a para- uh, London, which yeah. is. Um, I haven't read it for a long time, but has these imagos and these mirror images haunting the city, yeah. and it's probably one of again it's something that stayed with me. The images of of this kind of empty London, and mm. it's uh, such a o- opposing idea. Yeah. Um. So so those two two were quite strong. So they they kind of paved the way for mer- merging these two because they're yeah. they're very noir and very weird. And, yeah, at the um, same time, yeah. So I felt like I wanted to hang the supernatural elements of the story on the familiar hard bo- uh, the framework of the yeah. hardboiled noir. Yeah. So mm-hmm. at least there's an anchor there for – so if crime readers come to this, they're familiar with this framework. They know it's the – and I would say most people who are passionate about popular culture mm-hmm. would know the hardboiled detective with Sam Spade and, yeah. you know um, – So, you know these elements and you know these kind of, I guess, not to use the word cliches, but you know these things like there's the detective, there's the femme fatale, um, she comes in with a problem, that kind of story arc. And then I start to introduce those weird elements into that. And I think that's where the start comes into it. And I think we were talking before about... Um, you really, I'm glad you really enjoy the start. And my friend who editor Tom Gurney um, did a fantastic job and did a page-by-page page edit for mm. me. Um, and originally there was actually a whole scene <laughs> before that opening line. Yeah. And um, basically it um, it was the photographer sitting on the fire escape waiting for Don Greeley yeah. to come out um, to get caught in the act of mm. indiscretion. And, yeah. and it's a fun scene, but when he read it he basically underlined that first line um, nothing sold city's city secrets like a dead dame and said there's your opening yep. start here totally and it was one of those moments when you get someone else to look at your work and you go ah oh, okay like yep. i i actually that's that's a really good spot and i just i had to get rid of some words anyway so yeah. i like, can that first scene and it worked so well from that point and i'm like that's that's really good advice yeah the setup
0: yeah. was was really, really strong. Like, the the first line sold it. And I think, uh, you know, this is often the fact of a lot of writers, in fiction especially, where they write their way in as Mm. much as the character. So they write how they envision it. And then they don't realize that the scene starts, you know, way later.
1: But Luke, (laughs) do you have any uh, questions? Yeah, I was just curious. um, Were you tempted to stick the Supernatural at the very start?
2: Well it's like that's a really great segue there. into what I was gonna say is mm. that um the other advice he gave me and he did say that this is from another writer that I do not know the name of, mm-hmm. um, but it's stick your magic unicorn on the front page. And um th- the thing is that the the supernatural stuff is actually mentioned on the first page and the thing is that it's um it's the dead women and yeah. that's the supernatural thing. Um and basically that's the first thing I open with um, mm. because that's the thing that the story is actually about is those women and what happens to them. So and I, I tried to get to the strange goings-on as soon as I could because I didn't want it to happen halfway through the book. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess it's a really hard thing to do is when you're trying to flag and kind of... Um, and build yeah.
1: it up and flag at the same time.
2: Yeah, flag those little things that come up just so the reader doesn't get to the end yeah. and go, what the hell just happened? <laughs> what yeah. did I? And I do want a bit of that because weird fiction yeah. is all about, you, yeah, know, you want that right. kind of almost like that being sideswiped feeling when you fin- f- finish a work yeah. of weird fiction going, what did I just read? Yeah, yeah, what just happened? Then? Yeah, what yeah, just yeah. happened? And and that's what I love about weird. But you've you got to do it in a way that people aren't going... That was crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to feel
0: intrigued, not mm. betrayed. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so, Kat, well, why don't you I st- have
1: further question, not directly about this this book itself, though. Yeah. Um, well, go for w- it. You mentioned a few at the start, or maybe it was even before the podcast, that you're working on a whole bunch more work, a whole lot more stories. Are you going to be following the same character, or are you more interested in starting something new, something fresh? How does your novella writing pro- progress uh, process work?
2: Um, Well, I love actually working in this space because I really struggle with short stories. Mm -hmm. And I've actually written two full-length novels um, unpublished Mm -hmm. um, before this and it was a great process for writing this because um, I've I've always struggled with that short space of what do I do, what do I do, whereas this allowed me a little bit more breathing room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, with the other writing, I feel like... I, I I've been asked a couple of times whether the photographer will have a sequel, and I've been also asked whether it will become a novel or a script or a movie, mm. or a, and and people are quite intrigued to see what happens next to this character, which I never actually expected um, to hear because for <laughs> me it's quite a closed off story. So for you, it was a one off. Yeah. Mm. It was a one off, but you never know when you you'll get That's that. Right. That urge (laughs) to to
0: delve back in, follow those
2: characters back down. And I'm a big fan of um, uh, what Osama Tezuka used to do, um, you know, the creative uh, Astro Boy. Mm. And he used to reuse characters in different stories, um, even though they weren't necessarily playing the same character, like they were different Mm. actors in Mm. different stories. So I feel like I'd like to go back to this world, possibly in a different way. Mm. Um, I love the cameras and the the noir sensibility. And I love crime as well. And I've got another idea percolating. So Mm. maybe three years from now, (laughs) you'll (laughs) hear about it.
0: (laughs) Well, we'd be happy to have you back on when we (laughs) hear something new as well. But, um,
2: (laughs) yep, Yep, that's right.
0: All good. Well, uh, where can people find you, Kat, if they want to catch up with what you've been doing, what you are going to be doing, where they can get double exposure? Go for it.
2: So I'll give you a little plug for the – we're having a book launch at Loop Bar on the Monday 27th of July at 7 p.m. And that's going to be an awesome night. They're launching two books by Crime Factory. So my book and um, I think it's Lupo Danish Never Has Nightmares. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to be a good night, good people, um, have a drink, come and hear a bit more of the story. Um, And, yeah, feel free to come and meet me there and get a book signed. I'd love to see you there. Uh if you want to catch up with me online, I blog regularly on catclay.com, K A T C L A Y dot com, and I blog about writing, photography, travel and just being creative in general. And on Twitter I'm cat underscore clay and I have a Facebook page too. Um if you just look up catclay, you should find it.
1: Sounds good, mm-hmm. Luke? Uh, the updates have a bit, been a bit slim <laughs> r- recently with my new project, but yep. um, when they do come out, you can find them at the Soul Shard on Twitter or on www. Uh, actually, that's not even there. It's just http: the soul shard yeah. chronicles. dot com.
0: Sweet. Alrighty. Um, for the Morning Bell, you can find it at the dot net. Submissions are closed, but you know, they'll be open soon enough if you're a writer and you're interested in getting your work in, so go ahead and submit uh, when it is open. But look forward to the new issue that should be coming out shortly. The next podcast should air on the 5th of August, and that will be, once again, here at the Brunswick Street Bookstore at 7 Uh, p.m. We'd love to see you live. And, yep, 5th of August. Four weeks from now? I believe so. Oh,
1: okay. Yep. I <laughs> yes, know so we're, we're, break, missing a, we're missing okay. one week yep.
0: um, and then going straight to the 5th of August. Oh, there you but, go. Uh, Yeah, uh, it'll be a little bit of a break for us. But um, yeah, we look forward to having you back then either live or online when it comes out on iTunes. Hopefully the episode will be out and people will be able to hear where they can find you at the book launch. But Kat, thank you very much for coming. It was a pleasure to have you on.
2: Thank you for having me. It's great.
0: Fantastic. All right, well, we'll see you on the next podcast.